Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about cost versus profit with Dr. Larry Roof. How are you doing today, Larry? I'm great, Matthew. I'm, it's good. It's good summer weather. We're actually, it's kind of cool in Indiana today. So for August, it's been pretty nice. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with this uh, with you. We've had some really great conversations over the years, and this one in itself can be just kind of a free-form discussion around where are we as an industry when talking about reducing cost or increasing profit, because we all have different tendencies to the strategy that we like to deploy in managing our sow farms and our hog, hog facilities. And so excited to dive into this with you. To start things off, I'd love for you to tell us a little about your story. How did you get started with the swine industry? Well, I grew up on a small farm in Southern Indiana. Uh, my dad was a grain farmer. I actually sold his dairy cows when I was about six years old. I, I vaguely remember milking cows uh, with my dad or, you know, hanging out in there. And then the cows were gone. He said he wanted to see his family. You know, he got tired of uh, milking, milking those cows. And so we didn't have any pigs on our farm. Uh, he was a grain farmer, and but my neighbor did. And, you know, like a lot of us, uh, I, my neighbor, I thought was just the greatest guy and he had pigs and I'd hang out with him. And so I got interested in pigs. And so I had, uh, some purebred Hampshire sows when I was, uh, uh, all the way through high school till I went off to college. So that's how I got, I got interested in pigs. You know, it was a different, uh, I actually raised seed stock boars and gilts, you know, out of my sows. It wasn't show pigs. It was, it was real industry stuff, but you know, it was such a different industry at that time, but it's a lot of fun. I want to tell you, and I fell in love with pigs. That's what happened. So when it came to the earlier years in your career or before you even decided that you wanted this to be a career, what were some of the more impactful, what was an impactful moment or a story you can tell us about something that really got you going in this industry? Well, you know, you, you, we had talked a little bit before this about, you know, maybe three things. And, and, and I kind of list, or I made a list of about three that really were a big deal to me. Uh, one of them not related to pigs per se, but when you hear all three of them, they're, they're, I'm going to try to bring them together a little bit. The first one was my cross-country coach in high school. And uh, what the deal is with that, I was a, it's hard to believe today, I'm 67 now, but I was a pretty good basketball player. And the thought of running was appalling to me because I was not that athletic. And uh, he, he was just one of those kind of people that he understood that people had talent and some didn't have as much talent, but you should achieve based on your talent. You should get the most out of whatever that was that you had. And for those that have never run, uh, you know, cross country, two to three miles a long ways when you're young, it's a long ways when you're old. And it teaches you a lot about persistence and, and dedication and 
And I was just lucky to be in front of him or to be with him because he saw a lot more in me than I saw in myself. Okay. And, and those lessons of sticking to it and knowing that it's a long race, uh, those have served me well in the pig industry o- over time. So, so that was a really impactful one at a young age. My second one was when I was a junior in veterinary school, you know, you gotta, you gotta get in the wayback machine a little bit. You know, it's, it's the late seventies. Uh, the pig industry has just started to have some confinement buildings, you know, sows and, uh, you know, farrowing houses and nurseries. It didn't look anything like it looks today. And, and so, uh, we did a two month internship our senior year in veterinary school and you went and worked in a practice for two months. And so I went into Dr. Meyer, our, my advisor's office and to help have him help me find a place to, to go do this. And, and I said to him, or he said to me, well, what are you interested in? And I said, well, I, you know, I, I'm interested in food animal predominantly, um, a, maybe a good mixed practice here in Indiana. And he looked at me and he said, no, no, that's not what you want to do. He's, and I, I laugh about this because I know where you are today. He said, I know some practices in Iowa that you need to go to and see uh, a different part of the, the, uh, the world. You know, I, I always tell people uh, today, I know it's uh, real uh, common for college students to do a study abroad. Well, in 1979, going to Iowa for me, felt like a study abroad, you know, because uh, it was a different world, you know, and, and it was just really great. You know, I, I, I saw the world and, and, you know, Dr. Meyer was just like my cross country coach. He saw more in me than I saw in me. You know, I, I, I'm a goal driven person, but at those times in my life, my goals were not big enough. They were not grand enough. And fortunately, those two people saw that, you know, and the third and the last one that that kind of falls into that 20 years later, I've been in practice. I did. I did five years in mixed practice. And then in 1984, I opened up swine veterinary services, which was an all pig practice. And in 1984, that was pretty unusual. You know, in fact, there were people that wondered, could you even make a living doing that? You know, I, I it's just the way it was. But I was young and ambitious and, and probably a little stupid. That helps out sometimes when you start, you know, and uh, so anyhow, things, things progressed really well. The practice grew there. There were three of us in the practice and, uh, and things were really going great. And I'd been doing some consulting for Elanco Animal Health over that period of time. And um, in 1997, they, they asked me if I would go do a project in China. Uh, for them, for a company that I'd never heard of called CP, which is, you know, one of the largest food companies in the world. But um, so anyhow, they presented it to me. It, it was going to involve making uh, four two-week trips to China in about an 18-month period. Look, I was busy. I had family. My girls were one in high school, one in junior high, and I was flattered. But, you know, I, I was going to tell them no. Okay, I, I wasn't going to do this. And uh, fortunately, there was a guy in Alanco named Lee Watkins, and and Lee wasn't involved in this project, but he had gotten wind wind of it, and wind that probably I was going to say no. And he called me up and he said, "Look, I just want to tell you that I understand why you want to say no, but it'll be a big mistake if you say no." 
and it doesn't have anything to do with helping Alanco out. He goes, it has to do with you, that it's going to broaden your horizons. You're going to see things you've never seen before, and it'll make you a better veterinarian and a better person. And thank goodness, just like in those other two examples, I listened to him and I said, yes. And so now 24 years later and over 25 trips to China and Asia, you know, he was exactly right. And those stories, though, personal to me, they're to me, when you think about all three of them, the beauty of those stories didn't have anything to do with me. I mean, I had to do the work eventually, but it, I was just blessed that three gentlemen saw more in me than I saw in myself. And they took the time to, to point that out to me. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. And so when you talk about impactful stuff, besides obviously my family, my, my, my wife and two daughters, those three events, I was, you call it luck, call it blessed, whatever you want to call it. It, those were big deals to me because they, they really changed what I did in my career. No, and that's great that you brought those up too, because I think it's, uh, it's obvious to those who know you that you have really paid that forward as well. I feel as though you see a lot in others they might not see in themselves and, and you really do encourage these, uh, I mean, myself and other people in the industry who are younger to really go out there and make a difference. When, when you look at everything your colleagues know about you, what's one <laughs> thing that, <laughs> what's one thing they might not know? Well, um, that's, that's a tougher one. I, I, I picked one out that people that are around Greensburg, my partners and my veterinary practice, uh, they all know, but, uh, but I was a bank director, uh, for 25 years, uh, started out as a local bank here that, uh, after 20, well, roughly 25 years, uh, we merged into a larger bank and, um, uh, we grew that bank from a hundred million uh, in uh, uh, capital to to one billion dollars uh, in a, in uh, oh wow capitalization, and uh, we merged into a, a group out of Cincinnati called First Financial Bank. But uh, the reality was, I got to spend twenty five years in board meetings and listening to the world of banking, and I, most people probably don't know that, and it was. You talk about life lessons. It it probably make a uh, and business lessons. It probably make another uh, podcast. To be honest, some of the things I learned from the banking world. So that's one. That's that's not uh, that won't make the National Enquirer, but uh, that that was a big deal to me. I I had a great seat to watch a company really grow, and the perspective of the difference uh, in in businesses, the pig industry versus the banking industry. So to get to our to topic today, when we are considering a focus on reduction in cost versus driving an increase in profits, why do you think innovation has come so slow to the swine industry? Well, I think, first of all, the biggest problem is that people don't like to spend money in the pig industry. We've been an industry that just constantly focuses in reducing costs reducing input costs. And so anytime something new came along and had a price tag on it that didn't have a, a line 
on the, the budget or on the expense sheet, people looked at it and said, uh, oh, we, we can't spend money. You know, his, historically, it's been my observation that we've just been too reluctant to, to invest, that we're always cost cutters. Uh, and, and from a personal standpoint, most of the, the things that historically made me the most money were things that I had to put some money into, had to invest to, to get that done rather than just cut a cost. And I, I, think, I think we just have had a mindset, low cost, low cost, low cost in general. So when we look over the past, let's say, 30 years and some of the changes that have come to our industry, where do you think there were a couple times where the industry as a whole pretty much said, all right, we're, we're going to actually go against the norm of cut cost and we are going to invest and focus more on profits? What are a couple of things that happened? Well, um, you know, probably a big one that that we don't have anymore would be a product like ractopamine. You know, ractopamine was an added uh, cost, and yet the payback was uh, tremendous. Uh, I think I think the reality is some of the lower weights that we're seeing in the industry in the last couple of years uh, reflects what an impact ractopamine had had uh, on the industry, improving not only feed efficiency but uh, but growth rates as well. So so there are some there are some things like that. If you go back 30 years, the the purchasing of of genetics was an investment. You know, I mean I still remember, you know, in the 80s trying to convince customers that they should uh, go buy a, a a gilt from a genetic company and pay a uh, at the time at the time a $50 premium. Fifty to sixty dollar premium over a market pig uh, versus retaining their own gilts back. So genetic progress, you know, in the eighties was an area where we were willing to uh, to spend some money. That's actually a really great one to to kind of segue from. I mean, we look at genetic potential. We we have so much of it in our industry today. I mean, you see headline after headline and marketing ad after marketing ad of 18 teats uh, as an average now uh, for some of these, these genetic lines, just the productivity of our sows is, is, at a, is at an all-time high and at a complete new level. But when it comes to our people and our process management, that really allows us to make or break that potential. It doesn't feel like a lot of that has changed over the years, especially not as much as other industries that have completely overhauled everything they do seemingly because of what technology has given them. Um, why, why is that? I mean, why are we okay not knowing about our people and processes in a way that's, that's defined or, or specific? Well, I, I think part of it is that we don't want to accept the fact that we've got a problem that the, what, the system that we've devised, uh, actually, though it works well for some people, has not worked all that great in a lot of situations. And as we go forward, maybe even worse, because the ability to procure quality labor is is just getting worse. Anybody that's involved in visiting farms day to day on the farm knows what's happened in the last five years. I mean. I mean, first of all, the, the quality of the people that we have there 
is has just dropped compared to five or 10 years ago. It's very noticeable. And so it becomes harder to train people. We know all these things we need to do to take care of pigs, but you still have to have an interface with a person that can implement and detect and have that, that pigmanship, so to, so to speak. And that problem's only getting worse. And, and, and quite frankly, we've created a, a model, you know, the contract farming of uh, somebody else taking care of somebody else's pigs and without m- much supervision, uh, it, it's a problem. And we're going to have to face that problem in the next, immediately. But over the next five to 10 years, we're, we're going to have to change this model that we've put in place if we truly want to maximize the productivity of the genetics we have. Uh, particularly, you know, everybody talks about pigs per sow so much, but particularly wean to market. I mean, if that's where the money is and our, our performance post weaning is so bad in the industry that uh, there's tremendous opportunity there to recover that. But it's going to cost some money to, to implement that to, to help improve those numbers. Yeah. And I mean, outside of, out of those issues too, we, if we are going to have really good labor, the story as of late has been that it's coming from some TN visa workers and that they're coming in and they're, they're doing an incredible job. But what we do know in that situation is that it's a managed turnover. It's expected turnover. We know we have a couple of years and that's it. And yeah. so we can't expect to have 10, 20, 30 year tenured employees anymore. And so even if we do have a great labor, it's going to expire. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's why I think technology is going to be the answer. You know, and, and you know, you know, you're in that world and there's a lot of people working on that. But technology is going to be the thing that helps bring us uh, to take care of these pigs and know what's going on in these barns. Actually, particularly in the wean to finish barns, at a level that even good pig caretakers probably can't know, as well as if we get all this technology right. So why do you think it is that, I mean, we've seen a lot of different technologies over the past five to 10 years. and a lot of them really do work, but we don't see a widespread adoption of the technologies from the industry. And so companies fizzle out, new ones come in, they fizzle out, new ones come in. We don't ever really see, I mean, Maximus is a great example of where it did work, where we Mm -hmm. did see a company come in, put their stake in the ground and really drive long-term success. But that's not very common in our industry. And if we don't have that, then change is going to continue to be delayed because you need those those companies driving that change. Why do you think it is that we do not see that widespread adoption um, very often in our industry? Well, I think the first thing is we've been an industry, if we go back the past 10, 10 years, it hadn't made any money. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, we some economists could go into a lot greater detail, but the profitability of the swine industry in general has not been very good the last 10 years. And when you're not making any money, you don't have any money to invest in anything new. And I think that's been probably the biggest driver. And, uh, you know, you know, your Maximus example is a good example. And actually in my research barn, I, I use uh, Maximus for, for my ventilation system. Um, you know, initially I put that in 
gosh, maybe seven or eight years ago now. And, um, you know, at the time that was pretty cutting edge technology, you know, to remotely be able to look at your barn and control your barn. But it's, but at its basic core, I had to have a ventilation system in the barn. And, and so I think that kind of technology initially, yeah, there were, there were some quote, good bells and whistles, but you still had to have the basic, you had the basic needs of running your ventilation system. So that engineering needed to be present in the barn. So like for me, it was a relatively easy choice to say, hey, we need to upgrade our present system. And while we're at it, let's take advantage of this new technology and, and haven't regretted that. Uh, and then they've been able to build on top of that, obviously. But but this basic thing that there hadn't been a lot of profitability in this pig industry, that's kind of been the elephant in the room, I think, that a lot of people just haven't acknowledged. So you had mentioned and referenced pigmanship and how pigmanship is incredibly important and in some ways dying and in, in, in the industry because we don't have all these tenured employees who can kind of pass down that knowledge. And when we look at automation, you have automation and augmentation. And sometimes I think we miscommunicate what is automation in our industry. And as an example, if we if we have cameras in bar tracking the health of pigs and that camera with all of its amazing capabilities tells us this pig is sick you still need somebody to respond to treat and to follow up on that animal and so really a very small part of the process is being automated and it's just the identification of an issue can pigmanship be automated where, where do you think we are in, in how far can we go around automating pigmentship? Well, I think we can go a long ways. And, and yet at the same time, so first of all, we can go a long way. Pigmentship can be taught. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's no gene that, you know, automatically <laughs> says, okay, this person is, and this person isn't. There are difference in, in people, obviously. What, what all this technology is going to do, and I, and I believe it's going to be here. I mean, I, I believe within three to four years, we're going to get this figured out how to help that person in the barn. I mean, this would be my, my goal. My goal is to be able to, when that person walks into that 5,000 head wean to finish quad barn, they have a list of 12 animals this morning that they need to go look at. And that technology will have already identified those animals and even told you at least what pin they're in so that you can now decide, is that pig dead? Is that pig, is that pig sick? Uh, what does that pig look like? And, and that critical care that that person coming into the barn is still, he, they, he or she is still going to need a lot of pigmanship training and skill set. And what I think it's going to do is it's going to make that job more interesting for that person, because now instead of just roaming through a barn the size of a football field, you're, you're pinpointed and very accurately directed where your talents need to go. You know, we don't need to worry about 98% of the pigs or whatever that number is in that barn today, but we have to wade our way through all those pigs now. Uh, but if we get technology that can identify that pig this morning 
even even probably a day or two, as an example, a pig that has not been to the feeder in the past 24 hours, there's no pig husbandry person that could do that. Uh, and so that kind of technology is really going to help, I think, make the job of taking care of those pigs on a day-to-day basis much more interesting, not as routine, uh, and more rewarding. So, so yeah, pigmanship can be taught, and it it's probably going to get taught at a higher level as we let this technology show us what needs to be worked on. I, I like that that perspective of it being more engaging and more fun because when you do go into a finisher and you're walking around, especially if you're doing a bunch of them, it is pretty easy to space off or absolutely just fall into the routine of, all right, I'm walking through again. I've got pigs biting me. I really don't want to be in this pen. And then, okay, I'm off to the next thing. If you know, okay, I've got six animals I got to find. Well, now it's a challenge. Okay. Let's go find these, these six. Let's go get them taken care of. And and now I'm providing care and not just walking for the sake of walking seemingly. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I just think it's going to be the solution to quality of care. Now, there's, I tell you, there's going to be some pushback by our non-friends in the, uh, uh, the, the anti-meat world that don't like the fact that we're not going to have people there 24-7. Well, of course, we all know we don't have people there 24-7. But it's going to be better care for those animals because we're going to know, you know, we're going to know water consumption for the whole barn. Did it tick back? We're going to know, did feed consumption, you know, we know this already. Feed consumption dropped yesterday because it was 94 degrees here, but it didn't drop in a way that uh, we worry that the pigs are sick. You know, that kind of, that kind of information is just going to be, uh, more more valuable all the time. And I, I think the other thing that leads to, Matthew, is, is another job that I don't think we have defined. Uh, you know, in my banking world, you know, they had a chief information officer, you know, because, man, it was huge position, big deal. We're going to have something like that. You know, when you have 300 finishing barns, if we get all this technology pulled pulled into those barns, that's a full-time job just looking at that data on an ongoing basis. You know, that nerve center is because, you know, you got all these consumptions, both water, both feed. You got pigs that are identified that need to be looked at, followed up on. Um, there's going to be some different kinds of jobs overseeing these larger systems. Well, it's crazy when we think about it, too, with all the different tech companies coming in. They say, really don't overwhelm your user with more than five key KPIs. Okay. So I come in with a product and there's five and then another product comes in with five and five and five and five. Well, now you have 25 KPIs, Yeah. but the crazy thing is, is each one is already simplifying to five KPIs. What is more than five? And so when we look at this and go, well, we have data overload, well, extrapolate that times 10. And that's what brains are constantly trying to process in these farms or Yep. unknowingly or knowingly saying, I can't process that much. I'm only going to focus on these few. And so there's a lot of data, but we're already processing all that data anyways, and we're not doing it well. And so it, it opens up some, some interesting questions around how do we help our people through all of that? You know, I'll tell you a funny story. 
uh, I was a, in 1984, 1985, I was a beta tester uh, for Tom Stein and his uh, pig champ. And uh, so, you know, you talk about cutting edge technology. And, you know, as we develop that more programming and everything, there was, there's a report, you know, most people are familiar with called a performance monitor, and it has probably 40 criteria on there, you know, and it overwhelmed people. You'd go to farms as we kept building the performance monitor out. And I remember a farm that, that I helped manage. Uh, I asked them one time, I kind of, I was doing this on purpose, but I, I took a performance monitor and I said, okay, do you know what this means? No. Do you know what this means? No, no, no. And finally I said, look, neither do I. I said, here's, here's what I know. We need to know how many sows we're breeding each week. We need to know how many set pigs we're farrowing each week. And we need to know how many we, we wean each week. And if we get those three KPIs right, all this other stuff on this report will be okay. You know, and I, I think the same thing that was true then is, is true now as we develop this technology. We got to decide what is really, really important. And the rest of it may be interesting for somebody else to look at, but let's don't get overwhelmed with that. Yeah, we were talking to a, a manager on a south farm and they were talking through, you know, I, I've, I've been here for, for a couple of decades, but it wasn't until year eight that I had been fully trained on the records enough to understand what all of those metrics meant. Yeah. And so for every quarterly meeting where we sat down and people pointed it out, I understood premium mortality, I understood sow mortality, but everything else, I had no idea. And so how are people supposed to be a bigger part of the outcome when they don't even know where they're starting? from absolutely i i just think we have to to take these systems as we develop this information and decide what is really important for that that in the barn caretaker today and uh you know if if after that there's other stuff maybe we don't need to bother them with that that may be somebody else's role so when it comes to improving labor and then focusing on how we can support our people and make our people management more sustainable, do you think that there's going to be this zero to 60 epiphany of change? Or do you think that producers are going to have to have a, I'm going to go from zero to five, five to 10, five, 10 to 50. Is it going to be a stair-stepped approach to, to a, an evolved model? Or do you think we're going to make a massive jump? I, I think I think it'll mostly be a stair step. I do think if we can get to the point where we can, uh, where those pigs can identify whatever technology that is, whether it's ear tags, cameras, et cetera, et cetera, that, that identifies the animals for us to go find. And, and when I say go find, it's that technology is going to tell us where those pigs are, at least to the pin level. I think that could be a big one. I, I think when we you know, when we think back to what we we're doing before that, that one's going to be a big one and it's going to happen. I, I'm just as convinced as I'm sitting here that that is going to happen. And that'll be a big jump. That'll be the moonshot. I'm with you. It, it, it's, it's prevalent in so many industries. And I mean, there's cities where you can't go a single square inch without being tracked to see if you got weapons or something else going on. Like that technology will be there. It's been proven in the swine industry. It's just now the cost model. How do you make it worthwhile yeah. from a cost standpoint? And and as technology improves, it's just going to go lower and lower and lower. And before we know it, it we're going to have cameras and barns. 
Yeah, some 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 method of detection is going to happen, and and it's going to help augment the the labor issue. You know, it's going to make it a better job, not just a come in and idly walk through the barn. And we all know that in the contract finishing world, pigs aren't even getting looked at, you know, like they should to start with, let alone by by quality. I mean, when you look at look, I know there's good contract partners out there in the world that feed pigs but there's a lot of bad ones too and mm-hmm. and, and anybody that doesn't think that evidently doesn't get enough barns to know and we as an industry have to do a better job so what would you say as we wrap things up would be your golden nugget for the audience a life lesson that that you have learned that you'd like to share back well you you can't quit learning when you quit learning, um, you're you're just not relevant anymore. You're just not relevant. And uh, look, I'm 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 quote semi-retired. Uh, two years ago, I'm 67 now. And uh, by the way, I I ran two mile yesterday, so I'm still doing what that cross country coach. That's except, awesome. Except I ran that two mile in 18 minutes. That's a little slower than uh, when I was a 17 year old in high school. But, uh, but, you know, in the last two years, when I closed the practice, you know, I had a plan for the next five years. And that plan was to not work quite as much, and not to do quite as much. And I'm two years into that plan. And I'm enjoying it. I got grandkids, and it's a great gig. And I'm doing some consulting, and I've got my research barn, just not working 65 hours a week. but but I also realize I'm more selective now what I read, what I pay attention to versus when I was in practice and I felt like I had to be on top of everything and should should have been. Uh, but if you but if you quit learning, if you stop learning, uh, it's not going to take very long till you're not going to be relevant. That's just all there is to it. And uh, and that's OK at a certain time in your life. But if you're in the midst of an industry, you want to you want to be relevant. Uh, and so you got to keep learning. You've got to keep learning. And uh, how did how did you building on that? How did you throughout your career, especially as technology became a bigger thing and everything started moving that much faster? How do you keep up with change? How do you keep yeah. up with learning? Well, it's hard. And and I tell you, uh, it's interesting. And I and I think about that with this, these podcasts because th- this some of your listeners will be like me, and some of them will say, "Boy, he's right about that." You know, it was interesting. Uh, you know, I was an avid reader, and so, uh, you know, that was the way I kept up. You know, and and I made contacts with colleagues, and I did it all the old traditional ways. The fascinating thing is, with COVID, with the advent of COVID, all of a sudden the industry dis- discovered podcasts and that kind of thing. And quite honestly, because I'm not working sixty five hours a week, I've had time to listen to probably more of those than I ever would have if I was in uh, full-time practice. And I've thought about that, Matthew, a number of times. You know, all this information is out there, and how do you have time to, to listen to all of it, you know, and, and pay attention to it? And Because there's some real good ones out here. I mean, you're, you guys are doing a good one. There are other people that are. And uh, it's I think time factor becomes a challenge on all that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like if you were to take one thing from from now and place it back 30 years. It's all the sales guys in our industry, all the feed salesmen driving around. If they would have had podcasts they could have listened to in those cars. Yeah. <laughs> Just imagine how much more valuable the time of driving around could have been. Just because how how nice it is to hop in the car and if I got a 30 minute drive, okay, I'm going to learn about history or I'm going to learn about about swine industry. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So you just got to keep learning, but it's, it's a challenge for everybody. It's a challenge for everybody because to find the time to, to listen to things, to read it, you just, it's, it's, uh, everybody has that challenge. Well, we thank you for joining us on the popular pig podcast. It has been a real pleasure to talk through this with you. And I'm sure everybody listening is, is really appreciative of you taking the time as well. Hey, thanks for inviting me, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Thank you.